when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm George Parker. I'm standing in for Seb Payne, who we've just seen outside the studio, looking very green around the gills and unable, I'm afraid, to present this week's episode. So this week, we'll be discussing Philip Hammond's awesome budget, policy announcements, state of the public finances, and the impact it will have on Brexit. I'm delighted to be joined to discuss this by our economics editor, Chris Giles. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Now, Chris, you got the great story about the surprise £13 billion windfall that changed everything about Philip Hammond's budget this week. Where did it come from and what did it mean for the sums? Well, it meant everything for the sums. If we just go about the consequences first, it meant that instead of having the most difficult budget he ever had to present, where Theresa May, the Prime Minister, did the budget in June, where she said, you're going to have to spend another £25 billion on the NHS, where are you going to find that money? No one quite knew. We were all thinking, well, is this going to be the big tax-raising budget of the Parliament? Is this going to be a really difficult statement? Will it even get through with the lack of majority of the Conservatives have got? And then all of a sudden, up pops the Office for Budget Responsibility, the independent fiscal watchdog, and basically gives him all the money he needs to pay for the health spending and more. So he didn't have to do any tax raising. I mean, there's a little bit of it later in the Parliament, but that's more to finance some of the tax cuts coming alongside the health spending. So the big news was he was given a massive windfall and he spent it. That's the budget in a sentence. Where did that windfall come from? Well, it came from two sources. One was the... uh, is that tax revenues have just been doing quite a lot better than anyone thought a year or so ago. This might be because the economy is doing a little bit better than the figures are currently saying, or it might just be inflation's higher, or it might be just one of those things sometimes tax revenues just do a little bit better than we thought. And then the second reason is that in the longer term, the economic forecasts have been revised up a little bit, and that's essentially because... The fiscal watchdog now thinks you can run unemployment a bit lower than they previously thought. So those two things combined give a lot of money and he spent it. And let's say the windfall from the OBR completely changed the political narrative of this budget. And uh, going into it, of course, we'd had the DUP who prop up Theresa May's government threatening to vote down parts of the budget in process of her policy on Brexit. Some members of the European research group, the Eurosceptic Tories, threatening to do the same thing as well. It threatened to be really awful. And as you say, the money for the health service had already been allocated right back in June. That set the parameters of the budget. And we were talking about how Philip Hammond was going to have to find £100 billion in total to fund the programme over the whole five years. And it completely changed the mood. I just wondered what you think the budget would have looked like had it not been for that £13 billion a year that he suddenly found in his back pocket. It's a very interesting question. It's a question I also asked at a couple of off-the-record budget events the next day and didn't get a good answer to that because uh, everyone sort of looked at their shoes and Treasury officials there looked very much at their shoes. And so we don't really know what the discussions were. As far as we can guess, 
We think that it would have been a combination of borrowing more and more tax rises. So it would have been actually doing a bit of what Philip Hammond has promised for the future, spending some extra money just by saying, actually, Brexit's going quite well, and so we can borrow more. We don't have to have the same buffers as I've been holding. And, you know, realistically trying to do something quite serious on taxation at some point. You know, in the early autumn, we were hearing about national insurance rises, other big tax rises, you know, not doing the corporation tax cuts that are penciled in for 2020, all those sorts of things which were definitively going to be extremely painful for the government and might not have passed, just didn't have to happen. Yes, and we know very well from even when George Osborne had majorities, how difficult it was to get any sort of tax rises through the Conservative Party. And for Philip Hammond, especially demonised as the king of the Ramonas, it would have been especially difficult. And what I found really interesting was the way not just that he found money for the health service, which is obviously a big priority for the country, but also for many Conservative MPs, but the way he targeted additional money for a load of spending priorities for people who might cause trouble on Brexit. So, for example, there was a billion pounds extra for the rollout of universal credit. Esther McVeigh, the Working Pension Secretary of Brexiteer, has been causing trouble in Cabinet in recent weeks. A billion pounds extra for the defence budget. That's another cause dear to the heart of many Conservative MPs. And of course, then on top of that, the money for Northern Ireland, I think Mm. it was about £670-odd million for Northern Ireland, which delighted the DUP. And you could see him going around picking off individual problem groups on Brexit with this budget. So it was a fascinating budget in that respect. I thought the other thing that was quite interesting was the way he talked about this um, Brexit double deal dividend. You know, if we get a smooth Brexit, the idea that there would be this £15 billion of fiscal reserve he might then be able to spend. Also, that he expects the growth forecast will be projected upwards if there's a smooth Brexit. I thought he did that in a fairly politically sophisticated way. He wasn't sort of ramming it down the throats of the Brexiteers, but it was fairly clear there from all the figures. Do you think this double deal dividend really exists, apart from Philip Hammond's imagination? Well, on one level, it probably does. So we do know at the moment that in the economy, things like business investment is really subdued and companies are really just sitting on their hands. They're not going out and starting new buildings or buying machinery or plant because they're worried about Brexit. So if you took away that uncertainty, if you got a decent deal and you had a transition period and it was pretty clear where it was going to end up, then people might take longer term decisions again. And you would expect investment then to rise faster than it is at the moment. It's basically flat at the moment. And if you did get that, then growth would pick up definitively. But One of the interesting things is it doesn't necessarily mean the public finances pick up because as Robert Choate, who's the head of the Office for Budget Responsibility, the fiscal watchdog, said to a parliamentary committee this week, he said, um, well, the trouble with business investment is we don't actually tax it. So if companies spend more on that, they actually have lower immediate profits and you get less corporation tax in. So actually, there may be no dividend from having faster growth and a pickup in the economy because... You get more parts of the economy being very low taxed. But, of course, the other bit, which is spending this £15 buffer, I mean, that's just additional spending. There is no sort of dividend. It just means, oh, I feel I can borrow some more money and spend some more money. And that's definitively there if there's deals. So that's where I think you would find the Chancellor certainly spending some more. And then maybe some of the other departments in the spending review next year would find that at the moment they're really not benefiting. So there's still quite a bit of austerity around Whitehall to come and that that they could be bailed out, essentially. 
And do you think he was being fiscally irresponsible in that respect? Because I was speaking to one cabinet minister who said normally Philip Hammond would have been cautious. If in the Treasury, if you're given a windfall, you bank it or at least bank quite a large part of it, keep it back for a rainy day. He spent it for the kind of political reasons we've just been discussing. Do you think he was being a bit reckless? I think there's definitely a case you could make saying he is being a bit reckless. He didn't have much of a choice, to be honest. But there's now a bit of a ratchet in the public finances that when you get good news, you spend it. And when you get bad news, you let borrowing go up. Uh, That's been the practice of this government and, in fact, the last government too. So if that's the case, then you never get borrowing down because the moment you get good news, you spend it. And so the target of a balanced budget by the mid-2020s, as the Institute for Fiscal Studies said this week after the budget, seems to be for the birds at the moment. It's not the priority of the government. In fact, it might be strategically quite good to keep missing it because then at least the Conservatives can say we're aiming to get there, even if they're not. And they still have some thing to throw at Labour saying, well, you know, these guys uh, would want to borrow a huge amount more, but we're still aiming for a balanced budget. It's very difficult, but we're still trying to get there. We haven't quite achieved it yet. But how credible is that? I mean, after 15 years, if you still haven't managed to balance the budget, what I don't quite understand about this, you can explain this as an economist, is you get the deficit down to around about 1% of GDP or a bit below Surely over a six or seven year period, you can nudge it down so you're actually running a budget surplus and you've got that badge of fiscal credibility on your on your lapels. Yeah, you absolutely could get it down. There's, you know, we've gone from a 10% of national income deficit to a 1% of national income deficit. So we've done a lot of hard work. Of course, the first bit of the easy bits and the last bit have been much harder because we've hit the point at which you can't really cut the public sector any further without noticing problems springing up in the health service or in education or prisons or local government or wherever you think in the public sector. It's very, very tight. But of course you could do it. It's just that you don't want to at the moment. And in fact, with no majority, you think actually maybe it's a better idea to spend a bit more and tax a bit more ultimately. And I think that's where we're going because in the long term, with an ageing population, it's very, very hard to see any Uh, future for Britain, which isn't higher public spending and higher taxation. And just on the health point, there was a fascinating figure in the IFS presentation, wasn't there, about the share of public spending taken up by health. Can you remind me what it was? They said roughly that it had gone from, in the millennium, about 23% of public service spending was health, and by the 23-24, it would be 38%. So getting close to doubling the amount of that part of government is health. So the government is really just the NHS plus some other stuff. Yeah, and that's fascinating because when you cut through the figures and the Chancellor was talking about a 1.2% real increase of public spending over the next five years, once you took out the health share of that, it was basically flat in real terms for all other public services. And that raises the stakes, doesn't it, ahead of next year's spending review, that the Chancellor is basically saying, he didn't say it explicitly, if we mess up Brexit there won't be the growth and the revenues and all the rest of it to fund the other public services. So health is fine, it's protected, it's the number one priority of the government. But everything else, schools, prisons, police, all the rest of it, they will have to take their chances on a good Brexit. And on a bad Brexit, he was playing, again, quite a delicate political game because he wasn't saying, I will do a punishment budget. He didn't do that George Osborne thing. But he did say, I would have to have another budget where we would decide what we did. And to me, that was more of a hint that what they would decide, and certainly people in government I have spoken to about this, suggest that they would actually have a fiscal stimulus if there was a no-deal Brexit, just to try and uh, keep the economy running in the short term. But it would be a short-term fiscal stimulus followed by more austerity in the long term. So it's a sort of that double-edged sword. Uh, Yes, of course, we would try and mitigate any immediate pain, but of course, if the long-term outlook looked worse, that means the state of the public finances 
and public spending and the level of public services would be lower. Hmm. I thought the politics of this budget were fascinating. The fact that Hammond didn't actually say that austerity was over, but he said it was coming to to an end. end. And that seemed to mark a turning point in British politics. And you met some Conservatives, particularly on the right, who said there was a danger that the Tories were going to start playing on Labour's playing field, if you like. Do you think there's a way of the Conservatives owning this post-austerity agenda without playing into Jeremy Corbyn's hands? Well, I think you can certainly say that we are no longer cutting the public sector. We're going to make sure public services can operate at a decent level without having to say we're going to spend many, many billions more on every single service. So I think there is a game you can play. You don't have to be very sort of George Osborne-like and say only if we keep on ramming it down do we have a clear blue water between us and Labour. But of course it gets more delicate because the moment you seed the ground of actually the public services need some more money, they're not inefficient, it's just actually really tight for them, then you know you are playing on Labour's territory and we're back into the politics of the mid 2000s where you know you're sharing the proceeds of growth remember all those phrases that was, a, that was the tory policy in the run-up to the financial crash i think wasn't and, it? and that is pretty much where we are going back to and it's but it's more normal so that's in some ways a good thing where we where there is growth and then you can decide how you allocate it yeah you know, i thought it was interesting that philip hammond talked about putting an equal weight on the different calls on the exchequer so it was basically lowering the debt keeping taxes down, public spending and infrastructure. And he gave the impression that he thought all four of those priorities were of equal merit, whereas with you get the very strong sense that Theresa May would much rather spending more money on public services. She thinks that's the way to boost the popularity of the government. Yeah, and you don't. her view is you don't get a lot of... Uh credit for reducing debt when it's reducing extremely slowly you know it's not as if the debt burden is going from where it is now just over 80 percent of national income to zero it will come down to maybe by the mid 2020s 75 percent of national income but still well above labor's level before the uh, financial crisis of just under 40 percent of national income so you can see that being sort of fiscally conservative is maybe what the country needs in the long term. Of course, you can spend money on public services and reduce debt and have no borrowing, but you have to tax more. That's and that's the age-old difficulty that chancellors have because everyone wants them to tax less and spend more and borrow nothing. And that combination doesn't, unfortunately, exist. Now, the immediate political consequences of the budget will be seen and how this changes the political atmosphere ahead of these key Brexit votes in the next few weeks, assuming Theresa May gets a deal. And What I found really noticeable was the fact that the mood in the Conservative Party had been transformed by the budget. You have Prime Minister's question time. The Prime Minister, instead of having a load of sullen faces behind her, they were cheering her on and acting like a choir, sort of citing bits of the budget back at Jeremy Corbyn. And I just wonder whether that will have an effect. You know, the hardcore Eurosceptics do say that it doesn't change the equation on Brexit. But you just wonder whether for some of the softer Eurosceptics who've been told by Philip Hammond, look, we're almost back to normal economic times, don't put all that at risk whether actually the budget will actually feed directly into the Brexit drama over the next few weeks. It's a good pitch, isn't it? Rather than trying to sell the deal which we're going to get, which, assuming there is one, will be a massive compromise and no one is probably going to like it Mm. at all. Maybe the best pitch in those circumstances is to say, well, it would be a hell of a lot worse and just imagine what it would be like if you vote this down and then we, we leave without a deal and then I have to do some very nasty things to your constituencies. Do you think you're still going to get elected in those circumstances? I think that is not explicit because, you know, they're slightly smarter than that. 
but I think it's about the best pitch that they've got. And you know, had we not had the budget and not had the upgrade, we wouldn't be in this position. So you know, they are very, very lucky at the moment. I know it's very interesting. In the immediate aftermath of the budget, Theresa May and Philip Hammond launched an extraordinary charm offensive with business, You're meeting over at the Guildhall, meetings in number 10, industrial strategy council, lots of business bigwiggers, all of which is intended to get business mobilised behind the Brexit deal that Theresa May is going to come back with, she hopes, in a few weeks' time, and to put pressure on MPs of all parties to back the deal. And when you consider how she ignored and neglected Britain's business community in the first year of her time in number 10, it's a remarkable turnaround. I mean, now she feels she needs them, and uh, and she probably does, because their maths is still quite likely to be very tight, and it's very, very unlikely that the deal that she might strike is going to be something that MPs are jubilant about, because we won't know. We'll still be uncertain. It's very highly likely we won't know a huge amount about what the future really entails. That's not going to make anyone very happy. And so you need to get all the support you can get. And business is very much lining up behind no deal as a disaster. The Treasury's there. It's basically the same establishment community as were in the Remain campaign. Now, it'll be interesting to see whether you had the Bank of England doing the same thing today. They were saying, if there's no deal, we might have to stick up interest rates. I don't think that's a credible position of the Governor of the Bank of England, because I just don't think he would actually raise interest rates if there was chaos after a no-deal Brexit. But that's another big piece of the institutional part of Britain coming in behind the Prime Minister. And, uh, you know, it is the big guns. And the question is, is this sort of project fear more effective, you know, when you're trying to persuade 600 or so MPs than it was persuading 50 million people in the UK? Well, we'll find out soon enough. Now, finally, we've dissected the economics and politics of the budget, Chris. But the thing we haven't discussed is the humour of the budget, including a series of literally toilet jokes from the Chancellor. What do you make of the jokes of the budget? Well, they were terrible, but I quite like bad jokes. So I was one of the people slightly chortling along while listening to it when the rest of the newsroom here at the FT had their head in their hands. But the chancellor is actually, you wouldn't know it if you watch him on TV, he can do off-the-cuff speeches really well. I've seen a few of them at the US Embassy in Washington, and they are really very funny when he wants to be. He didn't necessarily show it very well this time around, but he's, there's a lighter side to Philip Hammond than he often lets out. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to Chris for joining us. We'll be back next week with Sebastian back in the hot seat, I hope, for another instalment. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscriber offer, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer 50. FD Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder and Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.